My name is Kyle, if you don't know who I am. Uh, and so let me welcome those of you again here in person. And if you are listening on our podcast, Anchor Point, I'm so glad that you are here. We are in a series called Questioning Jesus, where we are examining some of the questions that were asked of Jesus and more specifically, some of the questions to which he responded and answered. And you know, we've made some pretty serious strides here in the previous four weeks looking at Jesus's answers to the following questions. And if you've not caught any of those, you can find them on our podcast. Here are the questions that we've addressed and answered. The first question was, Jesus, what do you want with us? Uh, The second question was, Jesus, who gave you your authority? The third question was, so Jesus, who is my neighbor? And the fourth question is, so Jesus, what is the greatest command? And each of those questions are all formidable, formidable on their own. But together, in surround sound, the responses and the answers that Jesus gives to those questions allow a certain image of Jesus to emerge, uh, of, of someone who gives tougher answers to these very tough questions without apology. So tonight, we're going to add the next question of this series to this group. And here's the question we're going to address here tonight. And it's this, are you the king? Are you the king? Are you the king with all of its implications with its land and its resources and its fortresses. Are you the king? We find this question in John chapter 18. So I want you to follow along with me. We're going to be reading from verse 28 through most of verse 37. So John chapter 18, verses 28 through 37. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By the way, this is in the middle of the trial of Jesus. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jewish leaders did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and he asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they replied, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate said, we'll take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But they objected saying, but we have no right to execute anyone. In verse 32, and this is pretty critical, so you might want to hold on to this one. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death Jesus was going to die. We're going to come back to that verse in just a moment. Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace. He summoned Jesus And he asked them, and here's our question, are you, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus asked, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Pilate replied, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What what is it you've done? Verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, My servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate said, you are a king then. And Jesus answered, this is in verse 37, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to 
the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So there we are. The implications of this question, Jesus, are you the king? And and Jesus' answer adds to the already daunting alliance of the seismic answers to the questions that we just previously discussed. But this question, this question, are you, are you the king? This question is different because if Jesus is the king, which he admits to being here, and if every believer in the world adequately accepted him as the king at the most or at the least adopted his teachings, then why isn't the world any better? In other words, if Jesus is the king, then what is he really good for? What is, what is Jesus good for? I want to let that set there for a minute. I once began a small group with this study around the trial of Jesus, and I began by asking this very same question. This group, though, was filled with a bunch of teenagers. They were fresh from the battlefield known as high school, and they knew exactly what I meant by asking that particular question because they lived every day in the midst of explosive and untamed energy. They lived in the midst of this hyperactive culture where days felt like weeks, where they swam for hours in a sea of wonder and potential and hurt. And they were all good students, but you might remember this, high school is hard. And they did not have a good answer to this question because they knew that it was hard and they were surrounded by evil influences. And they didn't really have a good answer to this question, at least nothing that pushed them beyond the boundaries of these answers. Like, well, Jesus is, he helps me live the right way or, or what's Jesus good for? Well, he, he, saves, he saves me. And those answers are good, by the way, and they're all right. But they don't really explain why the world is in such bad shape if if Jesus is the king. And we really think the world should be in better shape, right? Whether, whether you believe in Jesus or not, there is this basic human belief that surely with all of our advances and all of our progress that the evil in the world should slowly and surely fade and that, that we're the makers of our own destinies. And we have this unlimited amount of achievement waiting for us. And we think our advances at least should grease the rough sides of life. I mean, really, this is really the plot of every Disney princess movie, that tomorrow is going to be much better than it was today. So let me, for just a few minutes, I want to give you the Google Maps view of why we have this basic human Belief, And this is a, a very brief history lesson, but I, I think it's important here. So let's go to Europe. Let's go to Europe in the 19th century. In the 19th century in Europe, humanity received a jolt of energy and progress for the first time in centuries and maybe for the first time ever. There were new advances in science and 
economics, along with the evolution of democratic governments and educational opportunities, all these things together created this groundswell of progress and optimism. Humanity, humanity seemed to have turned a corner from centuries of difficulty and darkness, and it did. It did turn a corner right into the 20th century, right? And the, that was the century, the 20th century was when humanity had to come to grips with the idea that human progress has one critical limit. It can't stop evil. Global wars erupted in the 20th century. Technology advances produced atomic and nuclear weapons. Human exploitation and trafficking exploded. And as we've turned the corner again into the 21st century, we've not been able to stop a global pandemic from creating health crises and unrest. It's 2021. We've still not cured cancer. So humanity for all of our creativity and for all of our ingenuity cannot eradicate evil. And this question asked of Jesus, this question, are you the king, presupposes that if he is the king and creation is his playground, then things would, should ultimately look better. And he would not be, in John chapter 18, bound in chains, exhausted before Pilate, enduring these silly, pedantic questions. So, let me ask again. I mean, if Jesus is the king, then what is he good for? Let's break down this text for just a few minutes, because the answer to that question is right in the middle of that text. I'm going to show you this in just a moment. And what I want to do as we move toward this answer is I want, to, I want to point out two key points that will act as signposts pointing us toward the answer of exactly what Jesus is good for. So let's just kind of break down what we know about John 18, right? This is the trial of Jesus as told by John, his apostle. Jesus was brought by the Jewish leaders to Pilate. And Pilate is the Roman governor in charge of keeping the peace in Judea. That's a pretty basic answer, but that's who he was. The Jewish leaders, this is, this is critical, they've already decided that Jesus had to die. Although, if you back up in John 18, we're really not even told why they came to that conclusion. Maybe, maybe they decided this because he was a nuisance or a blasphemer, or maybe because he disrupted the temple worship with his homemade whip. We're, we're really not told in John 18 why they've come to this conclusion. We just know that in John 18, they have decided that it would be better off if Jesus was just executed. And what they did is they hoped for Pilate's immediate validation of their decision that Jesus should be put to death. Since they didn't bring any specific charges of Jesus with them. They just brought their decision, but they told the truth. You can look there again in verse 31. They did not have the right to execute anyone outside of mob violence. And we've seen a little bit of that in the New Testament. And their inability 
their inability to legally execute a criminal was, according to John chapter 18, verse 32, I told you to pay attention to this one. According to verse 32, it was a fulfillment of Jesus's words regarding the manner of his death. Let's read it again. Verse 32, this took place, everything that we just discussed, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Now this verse, verse 32, it's, it's a big one. It's our first key point. It's our first signpost pointing us to what Jesus is really good for. And here's why. You know this, a little bit, little bit more history for us. The Romans... The Romans reserved the right to execute people across their empire, across all people groups. They were the only ones that could do this legally. And their manner of execution, you know this too, for public enemies was crucifixion. Crucifixion was a death that elevated people. It elevated the victim, right? Victims were literally lifted up on wooden posts. And Jesus knew this. Everybody knew this. And Jesus used this to his advantage. So we're going to back up in the Gospel of John. And we're going to go all the way back to John chapter 8, verse 28. You can turn there if you want. It's worth it. But if not, I'll read it to you in just a moment. Earlier in this Gospel, in John chapter 8, verse 28, we find the first hint that Jesus' enemies would be the ones who would literally elevate him, lift him up. I'm going to read it. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Now, we just read that, but did you catch that in that verse, Jesus said nothing about his death, not one thing, just that his enemies would lift him up, that they would elevate him, that they would, and this is so cool, that they would exalt him. Jesus is playing around with the words here. We know, we know this from hindsight that Jesus was referring to the method of his death. We know this, but his enemies didn't know that. They only heard a sarcastic remark that they would soon view Jesus as king. A little bit later, and you can turn to this one if you want. This is John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. A little bit later in this gospel, John actually ties this phrase of being lifted up with Jesus' death. I'm going to read it to you. John 12, verses 32 through 33. And I, this is what Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John inserts in verse 33, a little narrative uh, midpoint to explain this. This is what he says. He said, this is what John writes in verse 33. Jesus said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So now we get the, they're holding hands, right? These two phrases are holding hands. So Jesus's elevation, his exaltation would be his death. And so when we get back to John 18 and the trial of Jesus, we find that this is the first 
point as to what Jesus is really good for. This is the first signpost that gets us to this answer, and it's this. It's an elevated death. Jesus viewed his death as the moment that he would be seen as king, when he would be lifted up. That's the first one. Here's the second signpost, and this comes from John chapter 18, verse 36. We're going to stay in John chapter 18 for the rest of of tonight. In John chapter 18, verse 36, we have some, prior to this, we have some back and forth between Pilate and the Jewish leaders, and now between Pilate and Jesus. And this, in verse 36, is Jesus' very first response to the question as to whether or not he's the king. Let me read it. Verse 36, Jesus said, he said this to Pilate, my kingdom... My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus' only admission of being a king in the entire gospel of John is found in this verse, and it's found in this indirect statement. Jesus doesn't refer to his title here. He only refers to his responsibility, his kingdom. And here's what we know about this kingdom, and it's really the only thing to know, is that it is not of this world. That's what Jesus says. Now, let's talk about the world for a minute, right? This gospel does not Not one time, as you read through the entire Gospel of John, this Gospel does not refer to this phrase, the world, in a positive way. Not once. In fact, throughout the Gospel of John, the world is seen as all of creation in rebellion against the Creator. It's an antagonistic entity. So Jesus on trial, talking to Pilate, says that his kingdom is not of this world. And when he says that, it's his admission that his kingdom is not in rebellion to God. It is in sync with God. And as the king of this kingdom, Jesus is doing exactly as God had planned, that he, as the king, would willingly Surrender. So this right here, this is our second signpost, our second key point as to what Jesus is good for, that he is the king of a kingdom built on self-surrender. So we've got two signposts here, two critical points about what Jesus is good for. So let's kind of review them. Number one, it's his elevated death, right? That, and that his elevated death is the moment that he would be seen as king. And number two, the second signpost is that his kingdom is built upon self-surrender. So these two signposts, these two critical points are going to help us understand just what it is that Jesus is good for. They're pointing to the answer, and we find this answer in John chapter 18, verse 37, in Jesus' response to Pilate's affirmation that Jesus is the king. Here's the text. Let's read it again. John 18, verse 37. Jesus answered Pilate, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason that I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. 
everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So what is Jesus really good for? Well, it's right here in this verse. Jesus existed as a human to bear witness to the truth that he is the king. And that's what he's good for. And I can tell that you're probably not very impressed by that statement. You probably heard all this before, right? So let's talk about it. Let's change our perception just a little bit. So Jesus was elevated and exalted in death as a king who allowed himself to be killed. Those two points together comprise the foundation of the truth to which Jesus refers here. This passage, John 18, 37, it's often used in discussions about truth. And it has a certain clarity about it in a postmodern world, in a world of relativism. And it's a necessary statement. Jesus' statement on truth makes truth an absolute. It's not relative. It's not subjective. But for our remaining moments, I want to flip the script a little bit and talk about the opposite of the truth, the lie. So you want to know what Jesus is good for. As the witness to truth, Jesus stands against the rule of the lie. Now, let me say that again. As the witness to the truth, Jesus stands against the rule of the lie. Now, what is this? What is the rule of the lie? Well, we can figure that out from John chapter 18. This is what it is. The rule of the lie is that no king would ever be crucified. And if he is, then he's not a king. But the truth is that he was. The rule of the lie is that no kingdom would ever let down its defenses. And if it does, then it is certainly no kingdom. But in truth, it is. And the rule of the lie is that by legislating behavior, because that's what's happening here, by legislating behavior, the world, the world and all of its systems can be also the final word on morality. And in truth, they can't. And the rule of the lie is that only the world's systems can define justice and equity. And in truth, they can't. In fact, we've seen this happen in real time. It's the systems of the world. It's governments and constitutions and law codes. These things have seduced us into thinking that we can all be one big partnership, that we can work on their behalf for the good of the church, but that's just not true. And that's what John 18 teaches us. And in fact, that's actually taking a much higher view of the world than is afforded in this gospel. 
Can we be good citizens? Yes, we should be. Should we be good neighbors? Absolutely. We're taught to be that in the New Testament. But we are not to partner with terrestrial institutions. We should not buy into the myth of our own progress because we are a people who follow a king who is not of this world. And it was Jesus' advent into this world that exposes all of this. And at the very least, if you want to know what Jesus is good for, at the very least, this is what he's good for, exposing the fallibility of what we think wrongly should be elevated. And at the most, you want to know what Jesus is good for at the most? It's to admit that he is the king, even knowing that our road may actually, actually lead us to the same place that it led Jesus. Let me finish with the lyrics of a song that you know. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood, they support me in the whelming flood. And when all around my soul gives way, you know this, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand because all other ground is sinking sand. This is what Jesus is good for. Let's pray together. Lord, we are sinners in need of your grace. We've too often declared our allegiance to fallen things, to fallible things, at the expense of our first love. And that's you. It's you, Jesus, who has authored and finished our faith. And we declare right here and right now, that we need the grace and the power to follow you even more closely. You are worthy of all our praise, and we pray this in your name. Amen.